You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. In our study of Matthew, we've come this morning to verses 28 through 32, but I want us to read beginning at verse 23. Matthew chapter 21, we read beginning at verse 23. The Bible says this, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. Answered Jesus and said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. And the man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered and said, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even regret afterward so as to believe Him. Let's go together to our God in prayer and ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, we do ask now Your blessing upon the reading and the proclamation of Your Word. Holy Spirit of God, who gave us this book, would You be at work in our hearts and minds as we hear that Your sword would do its work in our lives. We do pray, Lord, for those who don't know you. We ask that today would be a day of salvation for them. Would you have mercy upon them? But we gather each Lord's Day to worship you as your church, and we need the pure water of the Word of God this day. We need it for our own lives, for our own families, for our own decisions. So Lord, would you be at work in this next hour instructing our hearts in a way that makes us more and more the people you would have us to be and that we are destined to be, and that You are making us to be, conforming us to the image of Jesus. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has cleansed the temple. He drove out the money changers and those who were buying and selling animals for sacrifice. In the outer court of the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, He drives them out, turns the tables upside down. Zeal for His Father's house consumed Him. And the next day, the chief priests and the elders are demanding an account from Jesus. By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right to do these things? And when they say these things, they don't just mean what He did the day before in the temple. They mean all that He does. By what authority do you teach what you teach? By what authority do you take the actions that you take, such as healing someone on the Sabbath? By what authority do you do what you did in the temple yesterday? Now, we saw last Sunday He has already answered this question for them just six months before. During the Feast of Tabernacles, they asked a very similar question, and He gave a clear answer as to where His authority comes from, from heaven. But here they are asking again, hoping to entrap Him in some way. And He tells them that He will answer their question, but only if they're willing to answer His question first. I'll tell you what you want to hear, but first I want to ask you this. How do you explain the ministry of John the Baptist? What was the source of John's ministry? Was it from heaven... Or was it from man? What John said, what John represented, what John called for, was he a prophet sent from God? Was he God's messenger? Was he speaking God's words? Did he represent God in truth? Or was John just a madman? Was he just speaking out of his own mind? How do you explain John the Baptist? Now, interesting, they asked Jesus about His authority and He raises the question of John the Baptist. Why would He raise the question of John the Baptist? Well, because the answer to their question is really found in their answer concerning John. If you know who John the Baptist was, then you know who Jesus is. If you believed John's witness, if His witness is from heaven and you listen to what He's saying, then you know who Jesus is because John identified Jesus as the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So what do you say about John? And they immediately recognize that they're caught in a vice. If they acknowledge John's authority as coming from heaven, they incriminate themselves. They voice it to each other. If we say from heaven, he's going to say, then why did you not believe him? But if we don't acknowledge his authority as coming from heaven, if we reject John as a prophet of God, we're going to lose favor with a significant portion of the crowd because they believe him to be a prophet. So what do they do? They say we don't know, which is a... Terrible admission if anyone's paying attention, because if you don't know, you're not able to recognize and guide the nation. You are the nation's religious leaders. If you can't guide them about John, how can they trust you about Jesus? But they say, we don't know. 
So they give no answer, and then Jesus follows with no answer. Then I won't tell you where my authority comes from. He judges them with silence. And yet, in Christ's perfect wisdom, the very way that He navigates this, the way that He answers this, the answer is plain for anyone who's watching. I mean, if you want to know about the authority of Jesus, just pay attention to that encounter. Because these men, for all of their influence and for all of their reputation, for all of their learning, have met with a wisdom that they can't conquer. Jesus answers them in ways that expose them. This will reach its climax in the next chapter, in chapter 22 of Matthew. Look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, notice this, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Where does your authority come from? Answer, well, you've met with a wisdom far superior to your own. A wisdom you can't deal with, a wisdom you can't conquer. A wisdom that finally you have to shut up because you're afraid to ask Him any more questions. I wonder where His authority comes from. Is it merely from man or is it from heaven? But Jesus goes a step further in our verses this morning. Verses 28-32. through 32. These men were meeting with divine authority. They were meeting with the authority of their Creator. They were meeting with the authority of their Judge. God in human flesh. That's who Jesus is. This is who they were meeting with. And if anybody wondered about His authority, He now demonstrates it by pronouncing a judgment. He assumes the authority to tell them exactly what their spiritual condition is and what their destiny is if they remain in their same condition. The judge is giving His verdict if they're willing to listen. And He pronounces their spiritual condition and He pronounces their relationship to the kingdom of God in a series of parables. This is just the first one. This is going to run on for a while where Jesus goes on giving them teaching and they're responding. This encounter lasts for a time. But this morning we come to His initial proclamation concerning their condition and their destiny. And it's a parable about two sons. A tale of two sons. And you'll notice he connects it directly to his question to them about John because down in verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. So he's going to include in his teaching and his application, he's going to include in this a reference to John the Baptist explaining why they're unwilling to answer him. And in fact, they've given their answer by their actions. This is a parable about obedience and rebellion. Obedience and rebellion. We'll look at it 
under three headings. The first one is this. We see a question about obedience. Verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. And the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered and said, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Which of the two did the will of his father? Which of the two was submissive to his father? Which of the two represents obedience? This ties in with what he's asked them about John the Baptist. Verse 25, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? And the belief that Jesus is getting to is belief that reflects, that demonstrates itself in obedience. If you believe, you obey. John's ministry called for action. John the Baptist's ministry called for submission, called for obedience. To believe John was to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. To believe John was to submit to a baptism that spoke of repentance. You would be admitting your sinful condition and the need to prepare yourself to meet with the king and his kingdom. John is the king's forerunner. He is preparing the way before the king. So to believe John is to say the king is on the scene and we better repent and turn from our sins to receive him. And John became more and more specific as time went on and pointed directly to the Lord Jesus. So the kind of belief that Jesus talks about, that they anticipated, He's going to say to us, why did we not believe John? The kind of belief that would have been required is actually belief in Jesus. You're asking me where my authority came from. Did you listen to John? Did you believe Him? And so this is really obedience to the gospel that is in view in this entire encounter. Are these men who have believed the gospel? Are these men who have obeyed the gospel? God has sent His good news concerning salvation. In fact, the Savior has arrived. John has announced it. And if what you have under the Old Covenant is genuine faith, then you recognize your Savior when He arrives. And you believe in Him in a specific way. Is that you? Jesus would be saying to these religious leaders, is that you? But He does it through this parable. By the way, let me just say something before we think about what He teaches in the parable. You do know that response to the gospel can be described in terms of obedience. Because the gospel comes with the force of command. Wherever the gospel is genuinely preached, it's not just the announcement of the set of facts by which God's mercy and grace to this world is put on display. That God, from the foundation of the earth, made a way for our sins to be forgiven. That His Son left heaven, came to the earth, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross in the stead of sinners, has been raised from the dead. And if anyone believes on Him, they will be saved for forever. You'll have eternal life now, and that means life that never ends. And all the promises contained in the Word of God, 
associated with faith in Christ, all those things will belong to you. You will become heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. This is the good news that is declared, but it's not just the announcement of facts. It comes with the force of, so you must turn from your sins and believe in Him. That's the command of the gospel. To turn from your sins and trust in the only hope you have to be saved from the wrath of God. And His name is Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. Will you turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, Will you believe He is who He declared Himself to be and who the Bible declares Him to be? Will you turn from your sins and trust in Him alone, throwing away any and every confidence that you have placed in yourself to save yourself? Will you know that you are such a sinner, there is nothing you could possibly do to fix it, to make it right? What you need is forgiveness. What you need is not reformation. What you need is the new birth. You must be transformed. What you need is not just a new course for living. What you need is forgiveness of all your sins and then a new life, a new life and by which you then walk in a new way. This is your need. And the gospel comes to you and doesn't just say, isn't that good news? Of course it's good news. If you believe the bad news about your sinfulness and the truth about God's wrath that is coming on its way, it's not just, isn't that good news? It is now you must turn and believe this message and put your faith in the Son of God. This is why the Bible can speak of faith in Christ as obedience. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says this, that Christ is coming again. This is the context. Verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. To those, the vengeance of God is on its way upon those who do not obey the gospel the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ has been set before you. Have you obeyed the message which calls you to turn from your sins and trust in Him? And by the way, this is obedience that is produced by regeneration. The faith that embraces Jesus is a gift. And so that's the question, isn't it? Do I have the Holy Spirit? Has my heart been transformed? Has there ever been a time that I turned from this self-centered life that I was born with in sin and said, Christ is my life. I no longer live for myself, but for Him who died for me. And now forever lives for me. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God doesn't ignore the sins of His own people, and reproves us, and disciplines us, and scourges us, well, what do you think He's going to deal, how He's going to deal with the sins of those who are not forgiven? And, and they're not forgiven because they've not obeyed the gospel of God. The good news of God's mercy and grace has come to the world, 
have you received it with the force of command and turned from your sins and trusted in Christ. And of course, wherever that has happened, wherever there's genuine faith, there's another kind of obedience, the obedience that belongs to a redeemed life. That is, those who have been saved are now characterized by obedient living. Not, not yet perfected living. We're going to deal with sin until the day we meet with Jesus face to face and we're glorified. But because of the new birth, because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, you can no longer live as the person you once were. And so there's a new life and a new course and a new desire to obey and a putting away of sin and an embracing of righteousness that characterizes people who have genuine faith, who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus. Look for just a moment, a little bit of a lengthy section. Look at Romans 2 for just a moment. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 2 and look at verse 1. Paul really walking through the gospel is what he's doing in the early part of the book of Romans and impressing upon the Jewish reader how much he or she stands in need of forgiveness just like the Gentile world. That all of mankind examined by the law of God is sentenced as sinners, deserving of the wrath of God. Therefore, all of us in need of the Savior. So, Romans 2, 1, speaking to someone who knows the Word of God, therefore, in their minds, they've been able to condemn those sinners. We condemn those sinners. Well, do you know you're a sinner? Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Remember Romans 1, that list of the sins that are found throughout the world, especially characterized the Gentile world of the time. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What is repentance? A change of mind and heart that results in a change of course. It is to see the truth in such a way that you turn. You turn from the course you've been on and you go in the right direction, in a new direction. But it always begins in the heart. It's an enlightenment in the heart that results in a new course of life, turning from sin to embrace Christ. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Isn't that interesting? He's describing those to whom eternal life, he's speaking now beyond this life, eternity is broken forth. Now we're in forever, in the land of forever. And he says those who inherit that are those who by patience in well-doing have been seeking for glory and honor and immortality. That is, they've been living for the Lord. He's going to go on to make very clear in the book of Romans, we're saved by faith alone. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone. But you see, 
those who have this faith, this obedience to the gospel, are the same people who then live a new life. And they're seeking for glory and immortality. They live their lives to please the Lord, verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is one of the great lies that men want to adopt. The thought that, and I'm not talking about in perfect terms, I'm talking about in clear terms. The thought that you can't really know who has eternal life and who doesn't on this side of heaven. It is true to say that one day we will discover that we thought some people were saved who were not, and perhaps we thought some people were not saved who are, but in general terms, the book of 1 John says it's clear. It's clear. Those who live for sin are lost. Those who live self-centered, self-gratifying lives are lost. But those who live for Christ are those who have eternal life. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You're not going to be saved just because you didn't have the law of God. Because God has given enough information just by virtue of natural revelation, general revelation, for men to prove that they are sinners and to be held accountable for the knowledge God has given them. Even by that standard, men fail the test. So with the law, without the law, the whole human race is sentenced to the wrath of God. Everyone needs the Savior. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul Aren't you going to go on to teach that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone? Absolutely. Then why are you able to say that the doers of the law will be justified? Because this is what genuine faith produces. A desire to obey God. The law written upon our hearts. So that the desire to obey is not explained by some external pressure, but by internal desire found in a new nature. In the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. So I say all of that to say, the parable that our Lord is giving us here, it's a question. He's asking them a question through this parable. Tell me which one of these two sons did the will of his father. It's a question about obedience. But remember what he said earlier was, what they anticipate, why did you not believe John? Why did you not believe him? Then Jesus gives a parable about obedience, you see, about submission to the Father's will. And the way these two things tie together is where there's real belief, there's action. So if you believe John the Baptist, you submit to what he was calling for. So what do you have in the parable? You have two sons given the same instruction. The father comes, he actually speaks to them tenderly because he begins with son. Son, go work in the vineyard. And the first son says no. I mean, just initially and externally refuses. But later, regrets it. And he goes and he does what his father asked for. The second son responds respectfully. I want you to see this. Verse 30, 
And he came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered and said, I will, sir. I will, sir. But he did not go. So obedient sounding speech. Even respectful. See, I mean, the first son is clearly disrespectful. I will not. That's disrespect. But he turns from his rebellion and his disrespect, and he does what his father wants. The second son sounds respectful and says that he will do it, but he doesn't. He doesn't. By the way, to say you regretted it, isn't that something going on in the heart? You've said something with your words. You've said something initially by your actions. But in your heart, there is that sense of regret. There is a turning from what you initially did to do what is right. Whereas the second son has spoken words that don't reflect his heart. Because he reflects respect and re reflects obedience, but he, he doesn't go, which, which tells you what's in his heart. So Jesus asked this question, which one did his father's will? Which son represents obedience? Which son represents rebellion? Now we're to our second point. That is a conclusion. A question about obedience. Now we have a conclusion that is voiced about the obedient and the rebellious. Look again at verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. The answer is obvious. We all know it. Very clear, very simple, very straightforward. Everybody knows which one represents obedience. Obedience is not demonstrated by mere words. We can say things that we never practice. That's not obedience. Obedience is not demonstrated by hypocritical pretense of obedience. Just because you can put on a good show and people think you're obedient doesn't mean that you are. That's called hypocrisy when you pretend to be someone you're not. And so you put on the face of obedience. You use the words of obedience, but you don't obey. That's not obedience. Obedience is a matter of the heart that manifests itself in action. And so they can see this too. They know this. And they give the correct answer. And I'm sure they assumed that when they gave the correct answer, Jesus would have something more to say, probably an affirmation. Yeah, you got that right or whatever. But what they don't expect is an immediate application aimed directly at them. Jesus said to them, truly, as you know, that's a wake up and be alert. It's a sign of sobriety. Truly, you can take this to the bank. I say to you, you who ask me about my authority, you who are questioning me in this scene, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. You talk about an arrow that goes right to the heart of their condition and right to the heart of their future destination. This is the application of the parable. What does his application make clear? I want to give you five things. That his words in verse 31, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Five things these words make plain. 
First of all, his application declares that they are lost. They are unbelieving. They are disobedient. When Jesus announces that prostitutes and tax collectors would enter the kingdom before them, which is to say they are nearer to the kingdom than you are, he places them squarely in the position in the story of the disobedient son. You are not the obedient son. You are the disobedient son. You're able to recognize which one obeyed his father and which one did not. Well, you, you are the disobedient son. And then by applying it to the kingdom, they will get into the kingdom of God before you by applying these words to the kingdom He's making clear it's not just some general kind of disobedience. It is the disobedience of an unbeliever. I mean, he has just declared them to be outside the kingdom. When the kingdom arrives, you're not in. And in fact, you're not near it. Prostitutes and tax collectors are closer to entering the kingdom than you. He declares them to be great sinners. And he's saying they will never enter the kingdom unless there's a change of heart. He is saying, you don't know God. The people in the kingdom know God. The people outside the kingdom don't know God. He is saying to these religious leaders, you don't know God. Second, his application declares the consequence of their disobedience. As I said, he places them outside the kingdom. He says they won't enter. And the consequence of that is eternal. The kingdom is forever. I mean, there's a thousand-year millennial kingdom, but that's followed by an everlasting kingdom. So to not enter the kingdom is to be lost forever. What is at stake in this story and its application? What is at stake is their soul. Everlasting life or everlasting death. These are the weightiest things you could ever talk about. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, these religious leaders value their influence more than they value their soul. Why did they not listen to John the Baptist? Why did they go on rejecting Jesus? Why, after all the miracles they've seen, all the signs that nobody can deny, why, when they can't even deal with his wisdom to the point they'll finally shut up and not ask any more questions, why do they not believe in him? Or you can say the blindness of sin, and that's absolutely true. But what's wrapped up in that blindness is a fear of losing their place. They value their influence more than their soul. They value their reputation more than reality. Can I just ask, if anybody's listening to me this morning, that deep down you know you don't know God, but everybody around you thinks you do, and that's your reputation, and that's your story, can I ask you, which do you value more? Your reputation or your soul? Because if you die with your reputation, but you don't have Christ, you're lost forever. These men value their reputation more than reality. They value their pride more than salvation. What would cause someone to hold on to what they know isn't real? What they know continually shows up empty. What would cause them to hold on to it? Answer, pride. 
Will you humble yourself and be saved? Or will you value your, your reputation and your pride more than your soul? I'm not reaching to say they valued their influence more than their soul. Listen to John 11:48. These are their own words. They'll tell you in their own words what's motivating them. John 11:48. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. Isn't that a statement? I mean, there's obviously enough there for you to believe in him because if you let him go on, everybody's going to believe in him. Next statement, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Which is ironic because after they crucify their Messiah, after he's raised from the dead, after he's ascended into heaven in the year 70 AD, as you know, Jerusalem is ransacked and the temple is destroyed and they lost their place and the nation as they knew it. They will lose their lives to maintain their stubborn unbelief, and they're going to lose their lives. So his application declares their spiritual condition. You are lost. You are unbelieving. His application declares the consequence of their condition. You're outside the kingdom. That's going to be a forever thing. Lost forever. If you stay in, in your same state, Third, his application declares the hypocrisy of their disobedience. Isn't it interesting? He tells a story that involves a son who professes obedience to his father, but isn't really obedient. And he says, you're that son. Your mouth is full of words that would say you are an obedient son, that would say you are a believing person, but in truth, it's a mask. You are not obedient. You are hypocrites. Their lives do not match their profession. And they are demonstrating it by their rejection of God's revelation in His Son. You do know these would have been men who would have said, we are looking for and longing for the Messiah. And yet when the Messiah arrives, they don't want Him. Jesus commenting on John the Baptist in Luke 7, verse 28 said this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So you have converted tax collectors who submitted to John's baptism declaring the justice of God. Next statement, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by Him. The lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves by refusing John's baptism. They are not obedient men. Matthew 23, verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger." But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. 
Well, Jesus tells a story with a son who seems so respectful and so obedient, but he's a liar. And Jesus, in his application, puts these religious leaders in that category. You are, you're that son. You're unbelieving. The consequences are devastating. And you fool others, but you'll never fool God. You are a hypocrite. Fourth, his application declares the delusion in their disobedience. Why does Jesus talk about tax collectors and prostitutes? Why do you choose those two examples of sinners? Because in the eyes of these religious leaders, those are the worst of sinners. We've just hit the bottom of the ladder. We're down to the dregs of society. In their minds, when you talk about the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and Jesus says they are nearer to the kingdom than you are. Why is that true? Not because tax collecting as they did it wasn't sinful. I'll talk about that in a moment. And not because prostitution isn't sin. Obviously it is. But because, as he's going to go on to talk about, through the Word of God, some of those very people recognized their sinfulness and obeyed the good news. Turned from their sins. Turned from their lifestyle of sin to embrace the way of righteousness, the way of righteousness in God's Son as He was presented by John the Baptist, believing John's message. In other words, these sinners are nearer to the kingdom than you because they know they're sinners. Do you know you're a sinner? These leaders had been bothered before by Christ's willingness for the sake of the gospel to spend time with some of these sinners. Matthew 9, verse 9, And as Jesus went on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And He said to him, Follow Me. And He stood up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and His disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, He said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ came to the world to save sinners. If you aren't a sinner, you're disqualified. He won't save you. But if you know you're a sinner cannot work your way to God, cannot earn salvation. Only one way to be rescued and you look to Christ, He'll save you. But you have to come to Him as He is. He's not just the Savior, He's Lord. You don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. So you come to Him by the grace of God, by the work of the Spirit of God, seeing Jesus for who He really is. The Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And you come to Him willing to lose your life to have His life. That's who's rescued. So by, by applying this parable to these men in the way that he does, using tax collectors and prostitutes and saying they're nearer to the kingdom than you, what's he doing? He's addressing their delusion because in their minds, these are sinners and we are righteous men. 
I mean, the way they see themselves is delusional. They think that they're pleasing to God in and of themselves. Which gets to the fifth thing I'll mention, that is his application declares the tragedy in their delusion. The tragedy of it. So stop and think for a moment about what Jesus has, has truly described. You have Jews who have sold out their countrymen for money. They have, in some cases, paid for tax businesses, paid the Romans to be able to gather taxes, and this meant taking advantage financially of your countrymen, and in that way, disloyal to your own people, to enrich yourself on behalf of the Romans. And you have women who are living lives of immorality. They are prostitutes, selling themselves for money, violating God's sexual laws by their activity. That's on the one side of the ledger. Sellouts, greedy sellouts and prostitutes. And on the other side of the ledger, you have these men who live their lives in religious activity. Who fast twice a week? Who pay tithes of all that they get? Down to the herbs in their garden. They oversee the temple practices. They study the Bible. I mean, some of these folks are lawyers. That is to say, they are experts in the law of God. And they, in all these men in their various categories, guide the nation in the knowledge of God. These are the shepherds of Israel. These are the guides for the souls of men and women. And Jesus has just declared that those greedy sellouts and those sexually immoral women are closer, nearer, the kingdom of heaven than you who spend your whole life in the religious realm and are so conscientious about the external elements of the law that people look at you with great admiration and say, oh, what examples of godliness. And you are behind them. What does that mean? It means that, as he goes on to say, these people are closer. In what way are they closer? Because they know themselves to be violating God's law. They know themselves to be sinning. Therefore, when they meet with the truth, if they'll repent, there's mercy. And if you would throw away your pride and your influence and your reputation, religious leaders, and see you are sinners just like them, well, not sinning in the exact same ways, but still guilty before God. Having violated one aspect of God's law, you're guilty of all of it. You're a sinner. You deserve the wrath of God. If you'll turn from your pride and receive God's solution, God's remedy for your problem, He will save you. He'll have mercy on you. But your pride doesn't let you. You won't. You can't even admit the truth about your own sinfulness. When you know you're in a vice, and whatever answer you give is going to condemn you, you just choose not to answer. Which gives clear indication of your own sense of 
guilt, not necessarily in your conscience at, a, at a, an emotional level, but mentally. You know you don't pass the test, and yet you continue to act like you're acceptable to God in your own righteousness. This is something as, dare I say, Calvinists, we need to be clear on. God has not chosen to save every sinner. Every sinner will not be saved. Only those chosen before time, given to the Son for redemption, those are the ones for whom Christ laid down His life. However, in a way that we, have, we can't process fully, God has a genuine love for the entire world and would desire the salvation of every sinner. So God has not decreed. So there, there, there are times when God's desires don't match His decrees. That is not to say, however, there's not an ultimate desire wrapped up in those decrees because at the end of all things, God will be glorified in the way that He is destined and God's will will have been done perfectly, supremely in accordance with His perfect wisdom and goodness. I say this because of our Lord's own attitude about what He's seeing in these leaders, what He's seeing in Jerusalem. Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. What was available to you, but you didn't want it. You didn't want it. Are you someone right now running from a God who is willing to rescue you? holding on to your pride, holding on to your reputation, holding on to your influence, whatever that may be. Your delusion is tragic. I mean, it breaks the heart of anyone who sees it, who loves God and loves you. Third and final point. You have the question, you have the application. Then third, Jesus gives an explanation for His conclusion. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Four. Here's why I say this. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even regret afterward so as to believe Him. Christ now brings in that first son into the picture, doesn't He? How did the first son respond? He said no initially, but He regretted it. And He did the will of His Father. And it, it was pleasing to His Father. Well, here's what happened. God gave you John's witness. God brought John to you. He came in the way of righteousness. He came in the way of this is God's will. And He lived a righteous life. And His message was true and righteous. You rejected John's witness. But the most notorious sinners heard him. And they were transformed by believing John's witness. Not to say that every tax collector was saved or every prostitute was saved, but there was this mass outpouring of salvation. I mean, it was noticeable. In fact, Jesus says in verse 32, you seeing this, I mean, this is something everyone could recognize. There is something powerful going on here as tax collectors and prostitutes even are being saved. But even after you saw that, 
even after you witnessed God's saving power, you would not turn. You are not just blind, you are willingly blind. And you are inexcusably blind. Can I just tell you, it's interesting, of all the signs that Jesus could have brought up about their stubbornness, their stubborn unbelief, He doesn't bring up healings. He doesn't bring up the people that He raised from the dead. He brings up salvation. You, you do know, dear church, the greatest miracle you and I will ever witness is the transformation of a human life whom Jesus saved. When you see someone who didn't love God and now they do, someone who was proud and self-centered, now they, they live for the one who laid down His life for them. Someone who deals with the sin in their own life. They are, they are characterized, 1 John 1, 9, as someone who confesses their sins. Someone who has the humility to ask for forgiveness from others. Someone who has the humility to address where their feet have gotten off the path and I've got to get onto the pathway of obedience. This is, this is a miracle you've seen. When someone who didn't know God has been saved through the gospel, they've obeyed the gospel, they've believed God's good news, turned from their sins and trusted in Christ, and now their life is changed. That's a miracle. And someone listening to me has not yet been saved, but you've seen lives changed. You've seen people's lives transformed. Does that change your mind? Will you turn from your sins and trust in God's Son now? The Gospel comes with a force of command. Will you obey the Gospel? So in closing, let me just ask, <clears throat> which son are you? Which son are you? The one who knows he has sinned and regrets it and turns to submit to the Father by believing in His Son applying the parable to the preaching of the gospel today. You know that you have sinned. You have been rebellious against your Creator. But you regret it and you turn to believe Him and submit to Him by believing in His Son. Or are you one of those sons who says, I will, sir. You claim to know God. You claim to respect. Your words would say you respect the Father. But look at your life. You're not characterized by doing His will. And the reason you're not characterized by doing His will, it's not a willpower problem. It's a faith problem. Because the obedience of the Christian is the obedience of faith. And it begins by obeying the Gospel and embracing Christ. Have you done that? Because wherever you find that obedience to the gospel, you find a new birth. And wherever the new birth has occurred, you find a new life. And wherever you find a new life, you find a new course. Which son are you? And I exhort you with all my heart, if you don't know Jesus, to cry out to him right where you are right now. Isn't it wonderful? You don't have to walk an aisle to be saved. You're not saved in the baptistry waters. That follows salvation. Salvation is as near to you as your own heart and your own mouth. That if you can believe in your heart that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, 
that God raised from the dead. He's alive, able to save you right this moment. And with your mouth, confess Him as Lord. You will be saved right where you sit. Would you cry out to Jesus for new life? And this is the desire for you from everyone who loves you. And the church would say, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the clear terms in which your son presents himself. The clear ways in which he lovingly, mercifully identified the spiritual condition of people who though they were associated with faith, didn't have saving faith. And I know that in, in this church, in any church of any size, there are people just like that. Associated with faith, associated with us, having professed faith in your Son with their mouths. But their life reveals the absence of genuine faith, saving faith in their hearts. Lord, would you grant them this day the mercy of the new birth? And would they cry out to your Son in a way that's genuine because it's the gift they receive from you? We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.